Our gospel reading for this seventh day of Christmas and first Sunday after Christmas comes from John chapter one. Hear now again, God's holy word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace." For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us in preserving your word. We thank you for the word made flesh and our celebration this time of year of the incarnation. We pray that as we hear these things, your uh, spirit might soften our heart to receive them, that your spirit might fill me, that I would articulate these things clearly, and that we might all grow and flourish in the ministry of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When children are very small and just beginning to develop their own preferences, before they can even read, they develop an attachment to their favorite book. If you offer to read them a story, they will bring you that book, the the dog-eared book, the one that's falling apart, it's stained, it's their favorite. It's the one you've read a hundred times. There are millions of other stories they've never heard. There's a universe of tales they haven't been exposed to. You have books spilling off of your shelves, but they only want that one. They want that book, and you do. You read it to them again, and when you get to the last page, they say, okay, read it again, read it again, read it again. Children enjoy predictability, they enjoy stability, just about everything in their lives is new to them all the time. So they enjoy things that they can count on, things that they can predict, and they don't get as bored as quickly as we do. Repetition helps them build vocabulary and even learn how to read for themselves. These are all very good things. But for us, over-familiarity can breed boredom. Repetition can seem tedious for us. And because we are so easily bored, I always have a little bit of tension, just a little bit of concern around the big feasts of the church year, these big feasts of the, of the Christian calendar, so that I'm preaching again on the incarnation or the crucifixion or the resurrection at Easter, and it can seem like I'm pulling the book off the shelf that you have heard a hundred times. And I wonder, as, as I prepare for these days, I wonder, do you want to hear this again? Is this, is this, will you be bored? Will you tune out because you've heard it a hundred times? Or 
Do you have a childlike delight in hearing your favorite things over and over again? Do you have that eagerness to both dwell on these familiar truths that give our lives stability and also to explore the infinite wonder and the majesty of the Lord Jesus who is at the center of all of these stories. And I, I get concerned about that and then I'm encouraged. I'm, I, I remind myself that we're not always bored with repetition. You'll listen to your favorite songs hundreds of times. There are songs I was listening to when I was 14 years old that I would listen to all the way through, right now, all over again. We watch our favorite movies over and, and you laugh at all the same parts, uh, though you've seen it a dozen times. Uh, you, you, there, are no, there are no surprises in your favorite movie, and yet you watch it again. The point is, we are capable of a kind of perpetual joy in a thing, but we need to be reminded to exercise it and be aware of our tendency to wrongly think that we've heard it all before. We, we can think, I've heard this all before, there's nothing left to explore, I've exhausted all the possibility uh, and, and all the usefulness of it. We have to remember that of the things we love, and this is true for me, of the things that I love, I love nothing more than the gospel. Of all the, all the people I love, I love no one more than the Savior. And so I wanna know more about him and I never get tired of talking about him and never get tired of hearing about him. So today, I'm banking on your childlike faith and the comfort of familiarity and your willingness to also at the same time be open to the Spirit's uh, work in giving us fresh insight into these eternal truths because we're about to pull, off, uh, pull a book off the shelf that we've read many, many times. John's Gospel always gets referenced either on Christmas Eve or one of the Sundays of Christmas, the gospel reading comes from John chapter one. We've, we've heard this. We always reference this around Christmas. And as you know, John in his gospel, he doesn't give us the same infancy narratives that Matthew does and Luke does in, in their gospels. Now Mark, Mark drops us right into the middle of the action with an adult Jesus beginning his ministry. Matthew and Luke give us the infancy narratives. John knows having written his gospel later, John knows you have that information. You have those stories. We're good on that. What John does is he jumps right into the theology uh, of the incarnation. John begins with Christology. Who is Jesus and what has his incarnation accomplished? How does his incarnation reveal the Father? And so for just our few minutes today, I wanna to look at how John shows us that Jesus is the word of the Father and what that means, how Jesus reveals the Father to us, and I wanna spend most of my time on that. What does Jesus show us about who God is? And then lastly, how the incarnation incorporates us into the fellowship of the Father. The Son is in the bosom of the Father. The Son has this intimacy with the Father. What does that mean for us? So those are the three aspects of the incarnation that I want to look at today as we uh, dip our toes into John's gospel. So first of all, he shows us that, that Jesus is the word. Now the first phrase of John's gospel, the first sentence of John's gospel sounds like the first sentence of the entire Bible. The first sentence of Genesis is, we could all quote it, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And John, when he starts his gospel, he sounds a lot like Moses. He sounds like a, a lot like the beginning of the Bible. John says, in the beginning, same words, 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John himself is going to the bookshelf and pulling off a well-beloved book. He's pulling off the book of, of, of Genesis and opening it up to us, and he's gonna tell us the story of Jesus as the story of creation. You see, just as God acted sovereignly and creatively and graciously in the construction of the cosmos, so now God has acted sovereignly and creatively and graciously to redeem creation, the, the creation that was broken and disordered by sin. So now God is acting in the same way bringing a new world out of this old creation, redeeming and restructuring and bringing out this new world. And so John, by, by sounding like deliberately, by calling upon that old language of, of Genesis chapter one, John is showing us that, that there is this unbroken continuity between what God was doing at the beginning with the creation of the world and what God is doing now in the incarnation with, with Jesus, that, that Jesus brings to fullness what God started back at the creation. Uh, Jesus is not a plan B. Jesus is not a one-off character. Jesus is not irrelevant to the rest of the story of the Bible. The, the gospel is not a reboot of the, uh, the story that begun before. There's this common assumption that, that uh, that, that Jesus comes to kind of clear the deck. There were some good ideas in the Old Testament. There were some things that worked. There were some things that, don't, that didn't work. But let's scrap all of that and let's start fresh with Jesus. And so uh, all that's left in the Hebrew scriptures is a few morality tales. There's, you know, be like David, don't be like Samson here and, and things like that. But that's, that's not the truth at all. What John demonstrates here is this unbroken continuity between the story that begins with creation and the story that continues in the redemption of creation with, with Jesus. It all, it all connects, is what John is showing us here. John also tells us that the word, the word by which God created the world, the word by which God brought creation into being, that word, amazingly, astoundingly, that word has become incarnate. That word has become flesh. Now, throughout the entire Bible, God acts by his word. His, his word is the means of God's work in the world. Throughout the Bible, whatever God says happens. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. When God, when God speaks, things happen, and what he says happens. Uh, the word of God is eternal. Back in Advent, we read Isaiah 40, and you remember we read uh, uh, Isaiah 48. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. His word is eternal. God's powerful word continues to move and animate all of creation. It's not like God spoke in the beginning, created the world, and then stopped speaking. God's word continues to move and animate and give life to all of creation. I love the imagery of Psalm 29. Whenever we come back around to sing it or chant Psalm 29, it has some of my favorite imagery 
and uh, in the whole Psalter. Remember Psalm 29, where the voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful, full of majesty. It breaks the cedars. It shakes the wilderness. It makes the deer give birth. It strips the forest bare. You know the Psalm that I'm, I'm talking about. You see, by the voice of the Lord, there is both life and destruction. God is still superintending his creation. He's still speaking to and over his creation and working by his mighty word. In Isaiah 55, we read that the word of God always accomplishes exactly what he intends. Isaiah 55, Yahweh says, my word that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. If you need one and only one proof text for the reformed faith, for the idea that God is sovereign over all things, Isaiah 55, 11. If I've only got one verse, that's what I'm gonna use. I'm gonna say that the voice of Yahweh accomplishes precisely what he pleases with his word every single time. It shall prosper what God has determined. And so throughout the scriptures, we see this powerful, eternal, effective word of God at work. And now John makes this amazing proposition that this creative word, this effective word of Yahweh has become man. That the word of creation is a person. This is how John begins the gospel. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He, with this word, yeah, he, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. Jesus, we find out, is the means by which God created the world. The, the apostle Paul unpacks this even more in Colossians chapter one where Paul is speaking about Jesus. He's writing about Jesus and Paul writes, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. All things were created through this effective word who was made flesh, were created through him and for him. Do you see then why we can confidently and without any, without any exception, with, without any reservation, we can say Jesus is king of everything. Without, without any nuance, we can boldly state everything exists, everything is, is for the pleasure of King Jesus. He's king over all of it. Science, technology, the arts, agriculture, finance, our calendars, our homes, our marriages, our recreations, all of it belongs to Jesus. Therefore, because he is before all things and by him all things consist, because he is the creator of all things and all things exist for his good pleasure, therefore, there are only two ways to enjoy a thing. Either to receive it as a gift of God and to give thanks to God for it, enjoying it in the light of his pleasure, or by setting it up as an idol and by its, its perverted use destroy both it and us. There, there's, there's nothing in all of creation where we say Christ has no jurisdiction here. This has nothing to do with Jesus. This has nothing to do with right living before God. 
Uh, we don't make any choices in a vacuum. There are no pursuits in a gray area between the sacred and the, and the secular. Nothing is neutral. It all belongs to Jesus because he created all of it. A very simple example of this is that occasionally um, you'll talk to somebody and they get heartburn over Christmas trees or Easter eggs or pumpkins or, or turkeys or, or other things. And they say, oh, it's just pagan symbolism. And I, you have to stop them and say, are you saying the trees aren't God's trees? Are you saying that pumpkins don't belong to Jesus? Are you saying, oh, no, all of it, all of it belongs to him. They're, they're Jesus's trees and, and Jesus's eggs and Jesus's pumpkins, and we're going to use them, redeem them and claim them and give thanks to God for them and use them in a holy, righteous, festive, glorious way. And this goes for all food and all drink. And, and Paul digs into that in 1 Corinthians uh, 10 and 11 as well. You apply it to everything. You apply it across the board. It all belongs to Jesus. So John writes that this word of God who created all things has now, just to listen to this as if it were the first time that you've heard it, <laughs> this, this word who has created all things has now entered the world that he created. He's entered it bodily. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And he does this to reveal God to us. The Lord Jesus is not God in disguise. In uh, many of the ancient myths of, of Greek uh, mythology and, and Roman mythology, the gods are always manipulating humans by showing up in disguise. They come to cause mischief or to, or to, um, or, or to create mayhem. <clears throat> but they are always concealing their identity. That's not the aim of Jesus. The aim of Jesus is not to conceal God to veil God, Jesus is the revelation of the Father. John says in chapter one, we read it just a minute ago, he is the light that shines in the darkness. He illuminates, he gives understanding by his, his presence. Uh, John writes, he is the glory of the Father. He is the fullness of the Father. Through Jesus, we have received the Father's fullness. And John also says the only way to know God is to hear the Son. Jesus is the revelation of the Father. So that's the second thing that I want to spend just a few minutes on today is that Jesus, John says, is the word of the Father, the creative word of the Father, and therefore he's king of everything because he created everything. Jesus is the revelation of the Father. In no way was Jesus ever at odds or in disagreement with the Father. Jesus is not the nice guy who gets the angry irascible Old Testament God to, to take it easy, right? That, that's often the image that we get in many tellings of the gospel is that the God of the Old Testament was, was angry and easily provoked to wrath. But we get Jesus and Jesus kind of tells his father to cool it. You know, uh, he, he takes us under his wing and he, uh, he, he's nicer than his father. That is not true at all. The scriptures say, if you want to know what the father is like, observe Jesus. If you want to know what the Father is like, if you want to know what God is like, get to know Jesus. If you want to know what the Father takes pleasure in, you find that out by observing Jesus. If you want to know what the Father is not pleased by, if you want to know what he will judge, you find that out by listening to Jesus. There is no disunity. There are no cross purposes between the Father and the Son. And therefore, 
because Jesus is the well-beloved son of the father, because Jesus is the son in whom the father is well-pleased, we know that Jesus never did anything that displeased the father. He kept his father's law perfectly. Jesus is the fulfillment of the father's purposes in the law. And therefore, Jesus is the embodiment of the pleasure of God the father. It's like you, you show your son how to do something and you say, son, I want you to do it this way, exactly this way, every single time. This is how we do this. This is how I want it done. And your son takes it and out of obedience and out of love for you, he aces it. He does it. And maybe in some ways, ways that are better than you could have done it. And, and, he, and, and he says, how did I do, dad? And you say, perfect, perfect, son. I want it done like this every time. This is perfect. This is excellent. I couldn't have done it any better I, son, am well pleased. I am pleased with you. Now, that is the satisfaction that the father expresses in the son's obedience to his law. The father could not be any more proud. The, the father could not be any more pleased. Now, understanding this, this sounds so simple. It, it sounds almost overly simple. But, but understanding this unlocks a fundamental truth. There are all these debates about the usefulness of God's law, the applicability of, of God's law. There's this misconception you hear from time to time that somehow God is displeased when we try to understand his law or we try to rightly apply it or when we try to obey his law, that somehow it's a denial of grace or it's a cheapening of God's grace when we work to understand what pleases the Lord. What pleases him? For, for some reason, it's labeled legalism to, you know, do what God says. Somehow that's, that's legalism. And this debate has several angles to it. But I think it would all dissolve if we would consider just what I've, what I've said so far. Jesus pleased his father. Now, why? Why did Jesus please his father? Because Jesus perfectly obeyed his father's law. Now, we are called to imitate Jesus. Do you need proof text for that? Do you need any proof text for that we're called to imitate Jesus? I could have used some when I was in high school. I remember there were times, there were challenges that I faced in school and I had some semi-Christian friends around me and I said, I really think we need to do this thing because I think that's what Jesus is calling us to do. I think this is what Jesus would do. And my answer, the answer I got from my friends was invariably, well, you're not Jesus. What, what does that mean? I'm, of course I'm not. I'm not saying I'm Jesus, but I'm called to imitate the Lord Jesus. Uh, so Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Uh, 1 John 2.6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2.21, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You got it? Are we to imitate Christ? 100%, 100%. It follows then, if we're to imitate the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus kept his father's law perfectly, that our obedience to Jesus, our imitation of Jesus is keeping the law the way that the father wants the law to be kept. Does that follow? Does that make sense? That, that following Jesus is obeying God's law. Jesus shows us how the law 
is to be obeyed. Now, is there a thing called legalism? Yes, absolutely. Jesus rebuked legalism. Jesus rejected it. Legalism is the false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees who, while rejecting God's law, they created these legal loopholes and they had this whole circus of self-righteousness to obscure their disobedience. They crafted these man-made laws to to bind others' consciences and and ignored God's law. But but you see, wanting to do what God says is not legalism. (laughs) It's obedience. It's the imitation of Jesus. It is the response to the full and free offer of salvation in Christ, to want to please the one who saved you fully and freely by grace. We respond to that uh, by, by obedience and by the imitation of the Lord Jesus. So John tells us this. He says that in the incarnation, the Lord Jesus reveals the Father's pleasure to us. He reveals the Lord's will to us, and he does it in this beautiful way that John describes as grace and truth. Two times he says this. Jesus was full of grace and truth. He says it in verse 14. He says it in verse 17. Jesus is full of grace and truth. And so uh, if we are going to imitate the Lord Jesus, then God is pleased with us when we are full of grace and truth and truth, not one or the other, not grace on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and truth on the other days of the week, not grace or truth, you know, pick whichever one suits you, no, grace and truth in equal measure all the time. If you just stop and think about this for just a minute, and where, where are you on the, on the spectrum of grace and truth? I think some of us would say, I'm way more comfortable being a gracious person, and some of us say, well, I'm, I'm really more comfortable being a truthful person, Grace people are great to have around, honestly. They, they're easy to be friends with. They always accept us for who we are. They give us lots of leeway. They don't put any demands on us. They don't ask, ask anything of us. They're not going to correct us. They're not going to confront us. They're not going to point out any of our errors. We're just going to get along with grace people. But then you see something comes up in the relationship or something comes up in life. We need to make a decision between right and wrong. And we find out that without truth, grace it's not really grace. It's cowardice. It's people-pleasing. It's just the saccharine niceness. It's a retreat from reality. So the all-grace the all grace friend is never going to grow, and they're never going to help you grow, and the all-grace friend has no defenses against error. They have no defenses against sin and wickedness. Now, truth people, truth people, we, we kind of admire them. They say the things we wish we could get away with saying, right? They're the people of principle. They're the people of conviction. They have a clear sense of justice of what is right and wrong. And they're not afraid to say it. They're not afraid to speak up. But without graciousness, without any manifest love for the person that you're speaking to, truth uh, becomes hostile and it becomes contentious. It really isn't truth if there's no grace because the truth is life, John says. The truth is light. Truth without grace is just intimidation. It's just a power play. I mean, it it might make a great podcast. It it might make a great Twitter feed, but it's not an imitation of Jesus. There are people you think, oh, I just, I just tell it like it is. Let the chips fall where they may. But, but without love for your hearer, without love for the person who's hearing you, uh, you're, you're, you're just, um, you're, you're just vaunting yourself and you're not, 
You're not reaching the person with the, with the truth. Jesus was all grace all the time. Jesus was all truth all the time. Jesus was full of grace and truth. So Jesus was full of compassion for the hungry and the suffering and those who were oppressed by tyrants and, and those who were left to wander under faithless shepherds and those who were misled by false teachers. His heart was touched by the leper and the lame and the blind. And even in his own suffering, Jesus is moved in compassion to forgive those who are crucifying him. Jesus uh, saves the man on the cross next to him and delivers him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Even when he was suffering, his grace was openly evident. So was his truth. His truth was always evident. He never hesitated in correcting his own friends. He never hesitated to name their sins publicly. He warned sinners of judgment and of hell. He declared the city and the temple would be destroyed for their unrepentance. He held forth his father's very high standard of obedience and accepted no excuse for disobedience to his father. So, so Jesus, as the incarnate word of the father, full of grace and truth, was all grace, all truth, all the time. And so that you and I can receive the benefits of his grace and truth, to be saved by his grace and truth, we read, John tells us, he tabernacles among us, he dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. He comes and takes up residence with us. There have been some times over the years where I've been working with folks on a particularly difficult subject, either, either a hard marriage or difficult problems with children or, or, a, or an addiction, where I thought, you know, if I could just come put my sleeping bag on your living room floor and just live with you for a few days, and maybe even uh, put on a referee shirt and get a whistle and a yellow flag to throw so that when you're cruel to your spouse or you provoke your children to anger or you are, are uh, trending toward indulging your addiction, I can be right there and I can call you to account and I can take up residence in your life and correct you on the spot. I can, I can help you and I can, I can admonish you uh, right, right on, the, on the spot. I think we could make some serious progress if we could just do that for a few days. I can't do that though because that would take me from my home and my responsibilities. However, the Lord Jesus has done that very thing. The Lord Jesus indwells his people by his spirit. He has given you the power and the capability to be gracious and truthful all the time. This is not an impossibility. You begin every day with this as your aim. You can do this to please the Father, to keep the Father's law the way that Jesus kept his Father's law, the way that Jesus pleased his Father, and that is to pray for grace and truth every day in every encounter, in every conversation. Lord, help me to be gracious and truthful with my spouse today. Lord, help me to be gracious and truthful with my kids in every text, in every email, in every encounter that I must be gracious and truthful. And the way that, the, the way that Jesus affects this, the third thing, so remember, he's the creative word of the Father and though through his creation, he's king of everything. He is the full revelation of the Father. He shows us how to obey God's law in grace and truth. And to, and to bring all of this together and to bring all of this home, Jesus, by tabernacling among us, by setting up his life in our life, he is incorporating us into the fellowship of the Father. He camps with us 
incorporated among us, and this is an invitation for us to be incorporated into the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what John says in verse 12. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Do you see there that uh, through Jesus and in Jesus, his father becomes our father, that we are born of God in Christ. Jesus is the firstborn, but in him, we are sons. I know you've seen a relationship before and you think, boy, oh, just that's such a beautiful relationship between a mother and a daughter. I wish I had a relationship with my mother the way that she has with her mother. Look at how those cousins get along. Boy, I just really wish that I had cousins like that growing up. Wouldn't that have been super sweet? Wouldn't that have been super fun and super nice? You long for these kinds of connections. You long for this intimacy. There is no purer, there is no more intimate or more blessed relationship than the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And in Christ, in his incarnation, by his taking on human flesh, you are incorporated into that relationship. You have been brought into it. The Trinity is not a click. It's not closed off. It's an open invitation to come enjoy the fellowship and the intimacy and the delight and the nearness of the life of the Trinity. The relationship between the Father and the Son is extended to us. We are included. We are wrapped into the love of the triune God. We're brought into the circle of friendship and fellowship. In John 17, Jesus prays this way. He says, Father, you're in me and I'm in you and your spirit is in us and uh, our people are in me and because they are in me, they are in you. There's all this language of mutual indwelling in John chapter 17. Mutual indwelling in the members of the Trinity that take up residence in each other person. Now in the incarnation... The Son in whom the Father dwells has, has, has made his residence among and in and with his people so that humanity has now been taken up into the heavenlies. And now humanity has a residence in the heavenlies. You see, God made his address on earth in Jesus so that now our address is in heaven in the Trinity. In Jesus, humanity is redeemed and accepted into the presence of God. That there is a man crowned, sitting over all creation right now at the hand of the Father. Jesus bodily reigns over creation. In the glorified Jesus, human flesh has been incorporated into the triune God. Think about that for a minute. <laughs> that, 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 that in Jesus, uh, a man has been incorporated into the Trinity. He dwelled with us so that now we can dwell with him. Um, John, who wrote this gospel, also wrote the book of Revelation, and he ends the book of Revelation where he begins his gospel. In the gospel, he talks about the word tabernacling among us, dwelling among us. And at the end of Revelation, in chapter 21, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And he's speaking of the church. The church is this incarnational 
indwelling of God. Um, the, the church is where the, the fellowship of God is extended and perpetuated and shared among us. We are his body. He is our head. He is in us. We are in him. This is all possible. This is only possible because of the way that our God took on the frailty and the weakness of human flesh. He was born as a baby. He entered our world, our experience. He cried, he suffered loss and pain. He made friends, he ate, he drank, he slept, he celebrated, he laughed. He knew loneliness, he knew rejection and disappointment. He understood disrespect, he was tempted. Our God came into our realm in order to deliver us, to redeem our world, and to make room for us in his heavenly realm. This is amazing news. And honestly, this never gets old. It's my favorite song. It's my favorite story. I listen to it a thousand more times. Tell me again, this is good news. And like all of God's good news, it comes with a call to action. God did this extraordinary work because he wants to dwell with you. He loves his people. He wants to take up, uh, 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 he wants to put his sleeping bag on your living room floor. He wants to dwell with you. So, so what's the call to action? So you dwell with each other. You, you abide with each other. Jesus makes room for us in the fellowship of the triune God. So you make room for others in your world, in your relationships, in your network of friends, uh, in the gospel. Jesus was full of grace and truth. That's how he revealed his father's glory. And that's how he kept his father's law. So you reveal your father's glory. You keep your father's law by being people of grace and truth. All grace, all truth, all the time. And thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the incarnation. We ask that you would strengthen us by your spirit in all of these good gifts, that we would delight in the incarnation and that we would live it out by being people of grace and truth. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.